can't do the tight jeans. Called to Syracuse, the land of baggy jeans, and we only wear scarves when it's cold, right? Not for, not for fashion. <clears throat> um, we, uh, we're so grateful for them, um, excited for how God's using them in New York City, and uh, happy birthday, right? Five years? How awesome is that? I, uh, I'm so grateful every time I stand in front of you um, and just look out and see the people that God has brought to this place. Um, it doesn't seem like five years ago we were sitting around in a living room um, thinking about what another church plant would look like in the northern suburbs and dreaming, really praying for many of you who we had never met. And uh, I don't know what life would be like without a Dugan or a Swain or a Bousquet or the Morrises, so many people. I, Sean, I can look out and just name all of you. Um, and the fact that, uh, that God has brought us together to worship together and to serve together and to minister the gospel together is beyond what we could have come up with in our heads. And uh, so he deserves to be worshipped for that. Amen? Amen. It's a, it's a great thing that we're celebrating. We, um, we are continuing our series in Judges, and we're right in the middle of uh, Samson, the life of Samson. And if you would turn with me to Judges chapter 14, we will get started. Um, last week, or I'm sorry, not last week, how many of you enjoyed last week worshiping with uh, Inglacia Michelle? Did I say that right? Wasn't that awesome? Come on. Give the Lord a hand for that. It was so, so amazing to be with those partners that are right here in the city of Syracuse, ministering to the Latin community and the Morrises being a part of that, and uh, worshiping with them and hearing uh, Rainier preach the gospel um, from Matthew chapter 5, which to be honest, uh, that particular passage is so relevant to what we're going to talk about today, and we'll reference that in a minute. But uh, So two weeks ago, we started with the miraculous birth of Samson. And we saw God's incredible provision again in this book of Judges. And now we are heading into the life of Samson as he is an adult at this moment. And to be honest with you, this, this particular chapter really reads a lot like a blockbuster summer movie, does it not? I mean, you got Samson is this jacked up dude, he's completely impulsive, he's like a superhero, anyone who grew up in church you just remember like the felt board Samson and, and think this was, like, this was like a superhero. What an incredible guy. And that's kind of how we grew up on Samson. But as we're seeing, and as we read this today, really the story is so different. We have been watching not just the cycle of Israel falling away from God, assimilating into the culture, being overtaken and crying out under, under oppression and God sending deliverers from Othniel to Ehud to Deborah and Barak as we've, as we've walked through the judges and we've said before, this is not really a cycle, it's more of a downward spiral, is it not? And as we see in the book of Judges, we see probably the first judge is the most uh, godly representative and now as we get to the last judge in Samson, as we look at his life today, we're going to see a man who is not a hero at all, but is really a reflection of where the people of Israel are in their complete assimilation into the culture in which they live. So let's read 
Uh, let's read and see how God would speak to us from this, from this passage this morning. Um, I'm going to read, we're going to start in, ver- in chapter 14, we're going to read two chapters, 14 and 15. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. If you do not, we're going to have it right up on the screen for you. Judges chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. It was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with a woman, with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped it, the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Can you imagine saying that today? If you have not plowed with my heifer? It would be a bad day for any husband. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to... Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, 
but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines. When I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that, he, that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramathlehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hand of, hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and, he, and the water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called Enhekor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality that you speak to us today. We ask that you would open our hearts. That you would allow your word to illuminate to us that we would see you and worship you and know you better. See you clearer. That the reality of who you are would be so much more attractive to us than the other realities we so often pursue. Thank you that you are faithful to your covenant. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So here we have Samson. It does read like a movie, does it not? I mean, this man is uh, strong. He's promiscuous. <laughs> he is uh, 
almost like a superhero in so many ways in his strength. You see several times in this passage the, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And God uses him. You see moments of Samson as he's impulsive and as he is really in so many ways um, in pursuit of things that are just right in his eyes. And what I want you to see and what I think the word of the Lord is saying to us this morning initially as we look at him is that God is really the hero of the story, is he not? The temptation is to look at Samson and his strength, and, I mean, he struck down a thousand dudes with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, He seems to do what he wants. He seems to be so courageous and heroic. But really, as we look at the clear picture of what God is speaking to us today through this story in the book of Judges, don't we see that God is ultimately the hero here? First, we see Samson in adulthood, and he is uh, in the land of the Philistines. The promise of the Lord was given to his parents that he would be God's deliverer that would deliver them from the oppression and the occupation of the Philistines. And the very next scene uh, that is laid out in the book of Judges is Samson as an adult goes to Timnah, he sees a Philistine woman, and he says to his father, get her for me. What a remarkable thing. I mean, we saw uh, uh, God's covenant with his people that he would not want them to intermarry or to marry with people in the land of Canaan, that, that he wanted them to only be in covenant relationship with those people who were in covenant relationship with him. Do you not see that? We see it in the book of Exodus chapter 34. And really, this isn't a racial thing at all from from the word of the Lord. What it is, is it's a covenant thing. What God is saying is, I don't want you to bind your life in covenant. And one of the most binding human relationships would be that of marriage, is it not? And you see mentioned in the passage, these uncircumcised Philistines. Well, what is is the word of God referencing here? This idea of circumcision was, was covenant. It was a sign and seal of the covenant people of the people of God that have covenanted with him to worship with him and to only worship him. And here Samson, going outside of the covenant, sees a woman and says, I want her. I want her. And he says to his dad, go get her for me. What a remarkable statement, right? And, and his father comes back and he's like, listen, isn't there anybody Anybody in the land of Israel here that you can marry, anybody in our family or in in our people group who are in covenant relationship with God to continue to be faithful to God, because clearly, right, Samson's parents, they have to remember God's promise to them when, when his mother became pregnant. As a barren woman, the angel of the Lord came. How hard would it be to forget and declared to them that Samson would be the deliverer, that Samson would be the savior, that he would deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. So Samson's parents remember this, and they say, wait a minute, you can't marry a Philistine woman. You're supposed to be the one who delivers us from this oppression. What a crazy idea. And what does Samson say? No, no, go get her, because she looks right, how? In his own eyes. Has this not been the theme of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
See, we see Samson as a picture, not of the hero, but Samson is a picture of who Israel really is in this situation. Samson is really an example of the whole people group and, and, and how they're behaving in this situation, where we noticed last week what was right in God's eyes and what God decreed to be right and holy and righteous is completely foreign now to the people who have completely assimilated to their culture, and they were only doing what was right in their own eyes. So Samson says to his dad, go get her for me. Now listen, in our culture, talking back to your parents is uh, probably a little bit more accepted. Not probably, definitely a little more accepted, right? I mean, how many parents here have heard this, right? Go, dad, that mac and cheese is right in my eyes. Get it for me and provide it to me, please. <laughs> Father, please take this dirty bowl from me and bring me a clean one with ice cream because it is now right in my eyes, right? <clears throat> it was really not the case then. In fact, the, the father was the head of the house and the father decided who you were going to marry. And the idea that, that Samson would have looked to his dad and said, go get her for me, and his father saying, no, I don't think you should marry this woman, for him to say anyway, well, thanks, go get her for me, she's right in my eyes, was really unheard of, really incredible. And Samson, completely disregarding the counsel of his father, completely disregarding the insight from his parents, completely disregarding what would have been right in his own eyes, what would have been right in God's eyes, and what God's decree was for his people, and only going with what was right in his own eyes. We see Samson's a, a, a perfect example of where the people as a whole were at this time. Samson was really impulsive. He was, he was um, for what felt good in the moment. Samson was looking to what aroused him from what he saw and what he felt. He lived basically impulsive and was not thinking of, of the promise that was given to his parents, was not thinking of what God wanted for him. She was right in his eyes. He's a picture of Israel's state of spirituality. You know, I see two things here in Samson that... that that I feel as though God is, is really laying out for us. And we see a man in the midst of a culture who's living an impulsive, sensual life. His senses are controlling him. He's reacting to how he feels. There's really a total lack of sexual self-control in his life. And he's just behaving impulsively as in the culture of his day. And we see, number two, that Samson in this moment is completely unteachable. Is he not? Completely unteachable as his parents come to bring wisdom and bring insight. He's, he's dismissive of their authority. Arthur Kundal in his uh, um, commentary on Judges and Ruth says this. In Israelite society, the father was the head of the family and as such exercised control, including the choice of wives for his son. It was exceptional for a son to contravene the wishes of his parents. In this realm, for the unit was the clan and the personal preference was subordinate to it. Unheard of that someone would do this. This marriage to a Philistine 
although we see in the passage, was from the Lord. Because what Samson in his own sin didn't even realize is that God was orchestrating that he was going to be faithful to his covenant. So we see in this passage, here's Samson living outside of the covenant, wanting to intermarry with the Philistine, those who he was supposed to be delivering the people from. And then we see this reference right underneath this moment where God says Samson didn't even realize that God was orchestrating this because he was going to be faithful to his covenant. And what do we see? Even in the midst of our own of our own. Uh, sinfulness, even in the midst of our own distraction, and even in the midst of our own impulsive selfishness, God's purposes will still be completed. Amen? God's going to do what he said he's going to do. God's going to be faithful even when we're faithless. God is going to make good on his covenant even when we're not interested in him. Here we have a judge that is not an example of a godly judge, but we have a judge who's really a better type or symbol or example of the people who have rejected God, and God is still going to use him to deliver his people from the Philistines, regardless of the fact that he's not even serving or looking to the Lord. How remarkable is that? Folks, we serve a great God, do we not? We serve a great God who loves us. We serve a great God who has made covenant, and we serve a great God who is faithful, and we can count on it. Amen? We can count on his faithfulness, even in the midst of our own sin. What a good God. Samson, he's a picture of Israel's state of spirituality. Sensual, impulsive, unteachable, and God, despite Samson, uses him. You know, we were church planning. I often felt, I don't know how Mike felt. Yeah, I do. Mike generally tells you how he's feeling. <laughs> often felt inadequate to the task. Often felt fearful. I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, what are we doing? <laughs> I think of a time years and years ago when my son was a toddler, maybe two or three, and he, uh, Trish sent him out into the yard to come help me paint. Any parent of a two-year-old son who wants to get a job done recognizes the, the conflict there, right? <laughs> and he kind of came stumbling out in his overalls, like excited to grab a paintbrush. It was the most exciting thing in the and, and, and he would just like, you know, dip the paint brush in the paint, collect a, a half a dozen rocks and pieces of grass, and just slap it on the fence, right? And as he was going down the paint, covered in it, covering the fence in rocks and dirt and grass and painting, I was kind of going behind him with a roller and just painting over it, painting over it, and picking out the grass and picking out the rocks and painting over it and trying to do the fence. But he was so excited to be a part of the painting of this particular fence. And I remember thinking to myself in this moment, is this not me? Is this not us in our ministry? As we come just so excited to be a part of it, but just screwing it all up, right? And just throwing rocks and grass and dirt and God just doing what he does despite us and still using us, amen? He's a faithful God. The fact that we're here at our five-year anniversary God is faithful. Amen? He's faithful. So we see a couple of things here 
in the life of Samson. Samson goes and he gets this woman. And God's using this and orchestrating this. God, really the hero of the story. And what we do is we, we see, what we see is we, Samson go and, and he, he marries this woman. And he does this thing with the honey and the lion. And he's incredibly strong and impre- incredibly capable. And in marrying this woman and, and accomplishing these feats, he has he gained an in with the people of the Philistines. And God had orchestrated this entire thing. And so as he's kind of gotten in and now he's married and he's a part of this, God is going to use him to begin to disrupt the Philistines, to begin to to deliver the people of Israel from the hand and the oppression of the Philistines. And so Samson responds out of not, not godly pursuit, not some godly act to go and, and deliver his people, but Samson in his selfishness is responding because he was offended, because he was, he was hurt by the Philistines and what they did to his wife, and, and he goes and he kills a whole bunch of them. And God is using this for his purposes. And as he does it, he goes down to this rock, and you notice this. The people of Israel come out. And what do the people of Israel say to him? They're like, what are you doing? You're messing this up. Listen to this. Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? And they're saying these words, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us in such a way is to imply, stop messing with the Philistines because they're our rulers. What are you doing? Leave it how it is. This is the first time in the book of Judges that we see a people group oppress the people of Israel and they don't cry out. They have not responded to this oppression with a, God, please deliver us from this oppression. God, please save us from this oppression. God, we need you. Please come and deliver us. They have not cried out for a deliverer. They are so unconscious to their assimilation into the sin of this culture. They don't even know to cry out and ask for help. And yet God is still helping. How amazing. In the midst of unconscious sin, in the midst of complete assimilation into the, people, into the Philistine culture, they are now comfortable with the status quo of living in the midst of their sin and idol worship. And when God begins to deliver them, they have not cried out for it. And when God begins to deliver them, they're upset about it. They don't even know they need it. They don't want Samson to mess it up. How relevant is that for us today? Calvin said in his institutes, sometimes we're so continually looking at what is black and brown in the midst of life that when we see yellow, we think that's bright. We don't even know what it means to be in the midst of the brightness of the goodness of God. The things of this world become bright to us because we've been looking at dark for so long. We don't even realize what brightness really is. So assimilated that they are absolutely unconscious in their enslavement. 
completely unconscious in their enslavement. No groaning, complete cultural accommodation. They've completely adopted and adapted to the values and the idols of the Philistines. Israel was on the brink of extinction. They were on the brink of being so assimilated into this culture that they didn't even exist anymore. And God, but God, was preserving for himself a people that are distinct. Amen? In the midst of their unconscious enslavement, in their brink of extinction and completely assimilating into the Philistines, God was still being faithful to his covenant to set apart for himself a people that were distinct, that were different, that were salt and light. Amen? We see in Matthew 5, Jesus using the metaphor that, that you are the salt of the world. Let's read it together. Matthew five thirteen. If you have it, turn to it in your Bible. If not, I'll just read it for you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Rainier preached on this last week. You are the salt of the earth. What an incredible metaphor. Salt which preserves meat. Salt which brings out its, the, the best out of the meat. The best flavor from the meat. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're to be the, the salt of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, if you lose those properties of salt that are distinct from the properties of the meat, that are different, that cause it to be preserved, that cause it to bring out the best flavor, if you lose those distinct properties, what good are you? You might as well be thrown out and trampled under feet. And God has called us to be salt. He's called us to remain distinct. He's called us to remain worshipers of God and not worshipers of the stuff that God makes. Called us to be salt. You know, this is, this is such, a, such a, a difficult topic. What, what are some of the things that, have, that we've assimilated to as worshipers of Jesus? What are some of the ways that we are completely assimilating into the culture in which we live and, and are not distinct. It, you know, even a hundred years ago, you saw Protestants in an effort to, to be more palatable for the culture in which they live, begin to preach a gospel devoid of miracles because they felt as though the people in their culture would not believe in the miraculous and they didn't want conflict. We not see it today in the body of Christ, in evangelicalism. Uh, uh, let, let's, let's not have conflict, and so let's preach a gospel that, that really does not come into conflict with the, with the morals or the mores of our culture today. The highest more being that, that you do not 
have any, any exclusive claims for truth. The highest more is inclusiveness of, of every single person, regardless of how they feel or live or, or whatever their felt identity is. The idea that we would never come into conflict with the ideas of our culture anymore, so to attract them, to get them into stadiums, or to get them into churches, or to get them into seats, we're going to just maybe throw a cool little uh, tagline life message about how life can be better and things can be cool and you can be more successful, and throw a little Jesus tagline on it, and let's not have any conflict with anybody in the name of Christ so that more people come. You know, we could probably sell some books, too. And millions of people will buy it. Maybe I'll get to be on Oprah as a celebrity pastor. And we don't preach the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually has the power to change lives anymore because we don't want conflict. Like the people of Israel coming to, to Samson and saying, what are you doing? Stop rocking the boat. We don't need conflict with our oppressors. Let them continue to oppress us. We're comfortable here. God's saying, you're the salt of the world. If you lose your saltiness, you might as well be thrown out. How do we assimilate? Think of so many, the, the pressures of parents today, is there not, in raising our kids what are the values? What are the things that we think are most important? Do we, do we worship God of, and, and treasure Jesus as utmost important? Or do we treasure other things that, that are so easily distracting for us? Whether it be sports, whether it be activities, whether it be you know, not gathering for corporate worship on a weekly basis, but, but, but being in a club sport. What is it that is, that is completely taking these things away and distracting us? How are we assimilating in the raising of our kids? Are we letting Disney Channel catechize our kids? Or are we sitting with them and teaching them the realities of the gospel? Not to follow your own heart and just do what you believe, but to follow Christ and to do what he says. Are we teaching our kids the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's amazing if you read the Puritans. The, the main job of a Puritan pastor was to make sure dads were teaching their kids the gospel. That's all they cared about. How are you as a pastor teaching fathers to catechize their kids and to teach them realities of the Christian faith and the gospel? That was their role. Are we, are we giving that up to the world? Are we in danger of the next generation being so unconsciously enslaved to our culture that, that Christianity becomes extinct? Uh, but God is faithful, and he is setting apart a people. Amen? God is faithful, even when we're not. This was very challenging to me, and I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. But in our desire for no con conflict with our culture and our faith, what are some of the things we're, we're giving up In my own life, I got very introspective reading this passage, and I'm going to close with this. I started to think about what are the ways, pragmatically, that I'm assimilating and I'm not salt. 
And, and you can't help but think of all the things that, that we enjoy in life and all the things that we pursue. And, and maybe ask ourselves this question this morning as Christians, how do we enjoy the blessings that God gives us? How, how do these graces, how do we enjoy the graces that God gives us in, in terms of blessing of the things around us and at the same time not completely assimilate? I think there's real fences that we can build. There's real boundaries that we can think about in light of the gospel and who Jesus is, in light of the gospel and what he's done. How do we respond in our lives of worship in response to the gospel in enjoying graces and enjoying things that God's given us without completely um, falling prey to the luxuries of this world and disregarding our worship of God? And I think that's an important question to ask. I think one of the disciplines that's lacking in the, in the body of Christ today is the discipline of watchfulness. The Gospel Coalition just put out a great article on this. This discipline of watchfulness, being introspective, being watchful in our own lives, and keeping track of what we're doing and how we're living. Solomon's Proverbs remind us that God's put fences around our bodies to keep us from crossing that line between innocent pleasure and excess, between enjoying God's gifts and abusing them. There's another great article that uh, Scott Hubbard put out uh, that I read this week called Just a Little More. And is that not it? That's it for me. Just a little more. I always want just a little more. I go out to eat. I'm stuffed. I want just a little more. I... I y- y- I've met people who, in complete want and poverty, want just a little more. And I've met people worth tens of millions of dollars who want just a little more. Is that not true? I've sat with people who are just impoverished and crying out because they just, they just want some sort of comfort, some sort of luxury that they don't have. And I've sat with a man that I know is worth over $25 million who's complaining because he can't afford a private jet. It doesn't matter how much you have. We want just a little more. And so what do we do with this? I thought Calvin was very useful, again, as he talked about the luxuries of this world that we live in. And here's what he said. I'm going to boil it down. We are just passing through. Now, this idea that we would completely abstain from any luxury or any benefit is is not biblical because God has given us blessings for us to enjoy, has he not? Food is for necessity and for enjoyment. Clothing is for necessity and enjoyment. Wine for necessity and enjoyment. And what Calvin says is, is as a believer passing through, we're here to enjoy art, to enjoy beauty, to enjoy flowers, to enjoy clothing, to enjoy food, and to, and to enjoy those things. But what he says is interesting, is that we don't hold that object of creating things, the holding of the object of creating things Created things was to teach us to know the creator, the author. What Calvin's saying here is, yes, you should hold on to these created things and enjoy them to the degree that they help in your passing through this world to glory and don't hold it back or, he said, retard it. Diminish it. That you should hold on to these created things in the light of the God who created them. Hold on to these created things to the degree they help you worship the God who made them. But at the moment you make good things, ultimate things. At the moment you worship created things and not the creator, you've moved into idolatry. Amen? Is that not the temptation? Is that not the issue? 
in the luxuries of your life, as you walk with the Lord, and as you walk in your conscience in relationship to Christ, are things that you have, things that God has given you as a blessing, become ultimate things? Are they now things you worship instead of Christ? That's the question, amen? That is the question we need to ask ourselves. Are the enjoyment of these things causing us to worship him, or are the enjoyment of these things causing us to worship these things and want more of them? And as the author of that article, just a little more, Scott Hubbard said, it's amazing because when we taste something and we want more and we want more and we want more, it no longer becomes a blessing that points us to Christ, but it becomes the thing that makes us nauseous and sick, does it not? I just want more and more and more and more and now I'm sick. As opposed to the fences around our lives that cause us to continue to worship God and to just taste it and enjoy it and worship God for it and move on. Amen? This is what God's called us to. So number one, we got to look to the author. Number two, Calvin says, the mindset by which you enjoy this life is in comparison to celestial immortality, in comparison to glory, you despise this life. As we're walking through this life, we're looking to glory, the life to come. Amen? We're looking to that day when we ultimately get to see the brightest light in our worship of God, and our worship of our Creator. And these things are just dim in comparison to that. Number three, bear your wants patiently. We need to bear our wants patiently. You know, someone who is ashamed of a sordid garment will become vain when they get a glorious one. Someone who's annoyed at the want of a more luxurious supper will abuse the luxury of a good one when he gets it. Someone who has difficulty and is dissatisfied submitting to a humble condition is unable to refrain from pride if he attains honor. God's called us in the midst of wherever you are to be content and to look and worship him. Be patient in your wants. I want that woman. Bring her to me. Impulsive. No no self-control. No self-denial. And as a believer, we look to God in any circumstances, Paul said, and I'm content because I have him, the ultimate object of my affection and worship. And I can be patient with anything else. Everything we have, lastly, comes from God. So we need to be charitable. We need to give. We need to recognize that our life in response to the gospel is worship. Let me just say it this way. Samson does deliver. God uses him as an imperfect man to deliver from this oppression and from this unconscious slavery and from this sin that the people are living in. But we see the plight of the people of Israel in the imperfect, partial salvation that's brought through the judges. And ultimately what we see is this. Our greatest enemy, our sin, our oppression, 
the fact that each one of us has fallen and in desperate need of salvation, the fact that we have this huge problem of sin that leads to death, that leads to destruction, our natural bent towards selfishness and and luxurious, opulent uh, living, an impulsive living and in the, the same way that Samson did, our bent towards that leads us to death and leads us to destruction. And we are in need of a savior. We are in need of being saved from our oppression and for some of us even an unconscious slavery because those who don't have the, who don't have the regenerating work of God in their life don't even know they're enslaved. Don't even know that they need Christ. Don't even know that they're oppressed. And apart from the regenerating work of God, because of the incredible salvation and work of Jesus Christ, none of us can be saved. And what we see is that God brings the ultimate judge, the ultimate hero. As he comes in the, as Jesus Christ, the God made man, fully man and fully God, who lived the perfect life none of us could live, none of us are capable of. Who lived a righteousness that would somehow, in an alien way, become ours. His righteousness that is perfect, so foreign from our unrighteousness that we're incapable of living. And then the righteous one takes upon himself. How counterintuitive. In the way that God uses Samson in this weird way, God sends his son to come and to take upon himself the punishment for all of us that we deserve. He takes upon himself the judgment, the righteous, just judgment of God for all of sin. And he absorbs it. He absorbs that judgment on the cross so that he can be our substitute and he can stand in our place so that his righteousness now becomes our righteousness when we couldn't do it and didn't earn it and weren't even looking for it. Jesus becomes the Savior, delivering us from oppression, delivering us from slavery, delivering us from all these things that are so dim and so dark in comparison to our ability to see him and to worship him and to be with him. He's the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate hero. He is ultimately faithful to his covenant and those people who he has chosen and God has saved us and now we can respond in in free worship of a God who is the ultimate judge and the ultimate savior. Amen? What a gracious God we have who is faithful to his covenant. In light of this, let us live watchful lives where we don't settle for those things that are dim, that where we don't assimilate back into the culture of counterfeit things to worship, but we keep him in his rightful place and worship him and him alone. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are the ultimate judge, you are the savior, you are the perfect and righteous judge, and you have redeemed us, you have delivered us. God, help us to see you for who you are. Help us to worship you and you alone. Help us to not allow the distractions and the, and the things of this world uh, to distract us from worshiping you. But as we enjoy blessings you've given us, help us to look to you and see who it is who gave it to us, the one where our ultimate joy comes from, and that's you. We need you in this. We trust you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.